You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To get at our antagonists, it was necessary to descend to the bottom of this valley and climb the heights on its opposite side. Colonel Cantwell, therefore, started his men on the double-quick down the mountain, himself leading them on foot. The entire movement had to be executed in full view of the enemy, and it quickly brought us within range of his musketry. With a great shout, the regiment rushed down the turnpike, reaching which the men scarcely stopped to take a breath before they began clambering up the steep slope. The enemy's bullets fired down the mountain, flew over us in myriads, but were not heeded, The Confederate fire only seemed to add to the exhilaration of our charge. Up through the slanting meadows went the blue lines, with colors flying and Enfields crashing. On the right, the 25th, 75th, and 32nd Ohio come up in splendid style, their muskets crashing too. Up, still up, go the steady lines, until they arrive within short range of the Confederates. The action is so violent all along the front that Jackson hurries up his reserves. Our men want to go at the enemy with a bayonet, and some of them even make a rush for that purpose, but are called back. It is not deemed prudent to advance the line farther against such superior odds, but the fight goes on unabated until the sun sets and darkness hides the combatants from each other. Happening to look to the rear, I saw some men lying on the grass. My first impression was that they had lain down to avoid being hit. But they were motionless. The truth flashed over me. They were dead. I had scarcely noticed before that anybody had been hurt, except that a bullet had struck the musket of a man next to me, and glancing had wounded him in the wrist. As darkness came on, the firing slackened, and at length ceased. The troops were then recalled. The wounded had all been carried to the rear, But there lay the dead, and it seemed too bad to leave them behind. So two of us picked up one of the bodies and endeavored to bear it away with the retreating line. But we had not realized until then how fatigued we were. The slain soldier was a young German who had received a bullet full in the forehead. We laid him down gently by the stump of a tree with his face upturned to the moonlight, and there we left him. A few minutes later I found myself trying to quench, in a muddy pool by the turnpike, the fever and thirst begotten of the extraordinary exertion and excitement. Lieutenant Alfred E. Lee, 82nd Ohio, Shanks Brigade We were on a hill and had to shoot down at the Yankees, and there was tendency to overshoot them, while they had us between them and the skyline, and we made a good mark. The timber had been cut down in front of us. This made it harder for them to get up to us, but at the same time it afforded them shelter. 
There was a long log that lay about fifty yards away from us, paralleled with our lines, and they were thick behind this log. They were about all killed too, shot through the head when their heads would appear above the log. The first one of our men killed was Balzer Pullen of Highland County. He was shot in the mouth or face. I did not mind it much, though, once I was into it. I was a mighty good shot with a gun, as I had used one ever since I had been big enough to carry one. I fired twenty-three rounds, and some of them were fired at mighty close range. Every time I saw a head, I shot at it. They were concealed by the timber, and it was not long until the hill was wrapped in powder smoke, like a thick fog, and it was hard to see them. I expect I came as near killing some of them as the next one, but it is better that one does not know for certain. It does not weigh so hard on one's mind. Private George W. Spinagle, Twenty-fifth Virginia Connors Brigade. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 146 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we laid out the background to the Battle of McDowell, which took place on Thursday, May 8th, 1862. As we proceed, it's important to remember that Stonewall Jackson's activities in the Shenandoah Valley weren't occurring in isolation, but were closely connected to the events farther east in Virginia at Fredericksburg and around Richmond. Yeah, as you guys know, McClellan's Peninsula Campaign was directly threatening the Confederate capital, and the rebel army commanded by Joseph E. Johnston had moved to counter that threat. But then there was another danger to Richmond, as the Union Corps, led by Irvin McDowell, was held back from Little Mac. And you guys know that story by now, right? But then that federal force marched down to Fredericksburg, which was the midway point on the direct overland route between Washington and Richmond. Robert E. Lee was then acting as Jefferson Davis's military advisor, and Lee was very concerned that McDowell was going to be reinforced by Federals from the Shenandoah Valley. So Lee communicated with Stonewall Jackson, hoping that Jackson could cause enough trouble out in the valley that the Yankees there would be tied down, rather than being sent to reinforce McDowell. So it's just important to remember that all of this strategizing, from the Confederate point of view, was designed to give Joe Johnston a fighting chance to beat the Army of the Potomac as McClellan advanced up the peninsula and put increasing pressure on Richmond. And so to keep Union forces in the Shenandoah occupied and prevent them from going east to indirectly or directly support McClellan's drive to capture Richmond, Stonewall Jackson had already fought the Battle of Kernstown back in March. After that clash, however, Jackson had been forced to retreat up the valley as the much more numerous Federals, led by Nathaniel Banks, followed him slowly and cautiously. And then when the Yankees finally moved in mid-April to maneuver Jackson out of his encampment at Roots Hill, Stonewall slipped away and eventually took up a position in Elk Run Valley at the foot of Swift Run Gap in the western foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
By that time, Nathaniel Banks had pretty much completely lost track of Jackson, and he confidently, but mistakenly, informed Washington that Stonewall had left the Shenandoah, and so there was nothing more for his, that is, Banks, force to do in the valley. Stonewall Jackson, for his part, was concerned that the enemy, in the form of Banks advancing up the valley, and John C. Fremont advancing out of the Allegheny Mountains to the west, would in due course link up in Stanton if their forward progress were left unchecked. And as we said in the last show, the loss of Stanton would be a severe blow to the Confederate war effort. Stanton, with a network of roads that converged there, was not only the key to the upper valley, but the important Virginia Central Railroad passed through the place, representing a vital east-west link between Richmond and Chattanooga. Stonewall knew that if the Yankees captured Stanton, the valley would, for all intents and purposes, be conquered, and then there really wouldn't be anything more for Banks to do in the Shenandoah, and he could leave and reinforce Irvin McDowell at Fredericksburg, which, remember, is precisely what Robert E. Lee wished to prevent. And so Jackson came up with a plan that would allow him to first push back Fremont, and then second, strike at Banks. Stonewall, of course, in attacking the enemy, hoped to do the maximum amount of damage possible to them, but at the very least, hitting Fremont and then going after Banks would not only serve to shield Stanton, but would tie down Banks and prevent his departure from the Shenandoah. As y'all recall, Robert E. Lee had arranged for Major General Richard S. Ewell's 8,500-man division to support Stonewall in attacking Banks. So Jackson's plan was for Ewell to cross the Blue Ridge Mountains at Swift Run Gap and take the place of Stonewall's men at Elk Run Valley. This would allow Stonewall and the Valley Army to slip away to Stanton and join up with the small Confederate force led by Edward Allegheny Johnson. Johnson's little division had started off in the rugged, mountainous region to the north and west of the Shenandoah Valley, but it had been, had been steadily pushed out of the Allegheny Mountains and closer to Stanton by Fremont's Federals. Fremont's 3,000-man advance guard was led by Brigadier General Robert H. Milroy. Jackson anticipated that by using speed and surprise, he and Allegheny Johnson, with a combined force of about 10,000 men, would be able to catch and crush Milroy before the rest of Fremont's scattered command could come up. Then, having derailed Fremont's advance, Jackson would take Allegheny Johnson, link up with Ewell, and they would go after Banks. That was the plan, anyway. In his book, Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins writes, quote, Edward Allegheny Johnson was a likable character, popular both with his men and with the ladies. Devoid of vanity, warm-hearted, and friendly, the 45-year-old Virginian had one peculiar trait. As diarist Mary Chestnut observed, he had an odd habit of falling into a state of incessant winking as soon as he was the least startled or agitated. He seemed persistently winking one eye at you, but he meant nothing by it. In point of fact, he did not know it himself. In Mexico, he had been wounded in the eye, and the nerve vibrates independently of his will. 
Cossens continues, writing, quote, Besides the eye twitch, Johnson also had acquired a reputation as a fine fighting officer in Mexico. He was breveted captain for gallantry and meritorious conduct at the Battle of Molino del Rey, and again for gallantry at Churubusco and the storming of Chapultepec. After the Mexican War, he served on the frontier, resigning his commission in 1861 to enter the Confederate service as colonel of the 12th Georgia Infantry. End quote. Allegheny Johnson had handled himself well in the Civil War so far, and as evidence that he was indeed a highly capable officer, he was held in high regard by Stonewall Jackson. On May 6th, with the Valley Army having arrived in Stanton, Jackson went out to meet Johnson at Westview, eight or so miles north and west of Stanton, on the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike. The Valley Army and Allegheny Johnson's men set out north and westward on the turnpike at daybreak on Wednesday, May 7th. The road was dusty but good, and the day was sunny and warm, and the march was an easy one for everyone except the VMI cadets. The boys were totally unaccustomed to such marching. According to a story told by a member of the staff of Charles Winder, the new commander of the Stonewall Brigade, one young, foot-sore straggler caught sight of the general and asked, Mister, won't you take me up behind? Winder helped him up on his horse, and then as they rode along, the boy inquired, Mister, what cavalry company do you belong to? I don't belong to any, the general replied. Well, to what battery? To none. Well... To what regiment, then? To none. I am General Winder of the Stonewall Brigade. Oh, General, said the young fellow, I beg your pardon. I never would have asked you to take me up if I had known who you were. When he tried to slide off, though, Winder stopped him, and as the two rode on, they soon fell into a friendly chat. Stonewall had Allegheny Johnson lead the advance because of his, quote, familiarity with the mountain region, and high qualities as a soldier, end quote. As Johnson's men set off from the vicinity of Westview on Wednesday morning, the Valley Army followed behind, marching out of Stanton. The brigades of Brigadier General William Tolliver and Colonel John A. Campbell followed Allegheny Johnson's men, while the Stonewall Brigade and the VMI cadets brought up the rear. As Johnson's vanguard approached Shenandoah Mountain, 14 miles from Stanton, they ran into Yankee cavalry vedettes. And we know we've mentioned it before, but just a reminder that vedettes are just the cavalry version of infantry pickets or sentries. Exactly. At any rate, the Yankee horsemen galloped back to the camp of the 32nd Ohio, which Milroy had posted near Rogers Tollgate at the eastern foot of Shenandoah Mountain. The Ohioans decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and they skedaddled over the mountain and vanished down its western slope as the Confederates advanced. Allegheny Johnson pushed his men on toward Shaw's Ridge, which was the next elevation along the turnpike. Milroy had positioned the 75th Ohio and a battery of artillery on the ridge, though, and a few shots from the Union guns sent the rebels retreating back over Shenandoah Mountain. Milroy also brought up the 73rd Ohio and 3rd West Virginia to strengthen his position on the ridge, but before long, word reached him that the enemy were feeling their way around his left flank, so Milroy withdrew his men back along the turnpike to the village of McDowell before nightfall. 
As for the Confederates, once the Yankees withdrew, Johnson had his men make camp on Wednesday night at the base of Shaw's Ridge, six miles east of McDowell, while the Valley Army bivouacked near Buffalo Gap, ten miles behind Johnson. Robert H. Milroy's men affectionately called him the Gray Eagle, a reference to his striking looks with his full head of steel-gray hair and contrasting dark brown beard and standing six feet four inches tall. As we've already said, Stonewall Jackson, using speed and surprise, wanted to steamroll over and crush Milroy's force. In his book, Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson, S.C. Gwynn writes, quote, But Milroy, as Jackson would soon learn, was no Nathaniel Banks. The gray-haired 46-year-old lawyer and judge from Indiana was one of the more aggressive Union commanders in the East. He was fearless and even reckless. In the words of fellow brigade commander Robert Shank, Milroy was always moved by undaunted and impetuous, though rather uncalculating, bravery. He liked to fight and wanted more than anything else to bring Old Testament-style retribution to the South for the sin of slavery. The night of May 7th was an uneasy one for Milroy. He knew that Stonewall Jackson and Allegheny Johnson had combined forces, and it would seem that the Confederates would have no trouble driving his heavily outnumbered brigade from McDowell, since the place was clearly nearly impossible to defend. Opposite the village, narrow and shallow Bull Pasture River flowed north-south, and high ground commanded McDowell in every direction. Jackson's Mountain loomed up just west of the village, and Bull Pasture Mountain rose up two miles to the east. A spur of Bull Pasture Mountain, called Sitlington's Hill, stretched south of the turnpike nearly to the east bank of the river. The hill's steep western slope towered 500 feet above the river. Sitlington's Hill had a broad and rugged top, laced with sharp ridges and ravines. Over on the north side of the road, Hall's Hill ran like a pointed finger to the riverbank opposite McDowell. The southern extremity of Hall's Hill was known to the locals as Cedar Knob. So, just so you can picture it in your mind's eye, but to put all of that in perspective, if you're approaching on the turnpike, as the Confederates were doing, you run into Bull Pasture Mountain running north-south across your path. South of the road is a spur of the mountain called Sitlington's Hill. North of the road is Hall's Hill with Cedar Knob close at hand. But if you just continue west on the turnpike, though, you then come to Bull Pasture River running north-south across your path, and then immediately across the river is the village of McDowell. So there you go. But no matter that the situation appeared hopeless, Milroy was determined to make a stand at McDowell. A soldier in his command said, quote, Imagine a large gray-headed man with brown whiskers seated on an iron-gray horse of the corresponding proportions and speaking in a low, sharp, quick voice, and you have Milroy, one of the most impetuous, go-ahead, fearless men in the whole army. Milroy had his men up and ready before daybreak on Thursday, May 8th. The previous day, Milroy, fully understanding the dire circumstances that threatened his brigade, 
had sent a message to the next nearest unit in Fremont's army asking for help. That unit was the brigade led by Brigadier General Robert Shank, but it was at Franklin, over 30 miles away. Milroy, therefore, knew it would take time for Shank to come to his aid, but he nevertheless decided to make a stand at McDowell on Thursday morning. Milroy expected to be attacked both from the front and from North River Gap, 15 miles beyond his left flank. He sent a squad of cavalry in that direction, but they didn't turn up anything. Milroy also deployed pickets from the 2nd West Virginia across the river on Sitlington's Hill, and he had a squadron of the 1st West Virginia Cavalry cross the river and ride east on the turnpike two miles to the gap through Bullpasture Mountain. But most of the morning passed and no attack came, and then at 10 a.m. Shank arrived on the scene with 1,300 infantry, a battery of artillery, and 250 cavalry. Shank said, quote, By leaving my baggage train under a guard at my last camp on the road 14 miles from McDowell, I was able to push forward so as to make the whole distance, 34 miles in 23 hours, end quote. Shank's men were exhausted, but their presence did much to bolster the morale of Milroy's men. As Lieutenant in the 75th Ohio said, quote, We now felt tolerable safe. Milroy was more than grateful for the support. He shook Shank's hand and thanked him for arriving, quote, just in time. The 52-year-old Shank was now the senior federal officer on the field. He was a distinguished four-term congressman from Ohio and former ambassador to Brazil, and he also happened to be one of the most accomplished poker players in America. With his three weary regiments and Milroy's six, the Federals now had about 5,000 or so men on the field at McDowell. Milroy wanted to make an attack with every man they had, but Shank disagreed. As senior officer, Shank could have imposed his views, but instead he and Milroy reached a compromise, a compromise that appeased Milroy's combativeness while also giving their outnumbered commands a chance to slip away without being pursued by the enemy. Shank later explained the scheme, saying, quote, We agreed that the better plan would be to send, that evening, whatever portion of our united forces was available for the attack, up the side of the mountain to assault the enemy and deliver a blow, if we could, and then retire from his front before he had recovered from the surprise of such a movement, end quote. So the Federals would attack with a portion of their command, but they weren't going for an all-out victory, just a temporary advantage. They would inflict a sharp, swift blow on the Confederates and then withdraw quickly from McDowell before the Rebels recovered from the attack. But as yet, there were no Confederates to attack. At 10.30, the officer in charge of the detachment of the 2nd West Virginia, posted on Sitlington's Hill, reported seeing a party of rebels moving toward him through the gap in Bull Pasture Mountain, but other than that, the front appeared clear. Milroy responded to the report by sending a company from the 73rd Ohio across the river and up the slope of Sitlington's Hill to reconnoiter the rough terrain beyond the 2nd West Virginia Pickett's position. Meanwhile, Shank deployed the 82nd Ohio on the eastern slope of Cedar Knob where it commanded the turnpike approach to McDowell. 
For good measure, Milroy sent a section of artillery to bolster the 82nd Ohio, and the Union guns began to blindly lob shells at the wooded heights beyond the turnpike. The Union guns fired one shell every five minutes until noon, when a party of enemy horsemen and foot soldiers appeared on the crest of Sitlington's Hill. Shank and Milroy thought they were Confederate skirmishers, but it was, in fact, Stonewall Jackson and Allegheny Johnson, along with their staffs and a 30-man infantry escort from the 52nd Virginia. There, on the crest, the party of Confederates drew the attention of every Yankee within sight. The Federal guns stepped up the tempo of their barrage, and with more enthusiasm than clarity of purpose, Milroy ordered a wave of skirmishers drawn from four different regiments across the river. Jackson found nothing alarming in the Federal deployment there across the way around McDowell, nor was he concerned about the enemy maneuvers on this side of the river. Stonewall neither expected nor intended to fight a battle that day. Before leaving the hill, Jackson asked Jedediah Hotchkiss and Colonel Williamson, the VMI engineer, to hunt for a road around the enemy's right flank that would be suitable for the movement of artillery. Stonewall then took his staff and set off back down the turnpike for John Wilson's hotel and toll house on the Cow Pasture River where they would eat supper and establish headquarters. Allegheny Johnson went off to call up his command, which was then under the direct control of Colonel W.C. Scott. Johnson wanted his men to occupy and secure Sitlington's Hill since it offered a commanding view of the countryside around McDowell. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As Stonewall rode off to go get a bite to eat and set up his headquarters back along the turnpike, the opposing skirmishers clashed on Sitlington's Hill. In his classic book, Stonewall in the Valley, Robert G. Tanner writes, 
Johnson personally deployed his arriving regiments. His old command, the 12th Georgia, took the area of greatest exposure in the center. The 52nd Virginia went to the far left and immediately fell in with the enemy skirmishers. The 58th Virginia was stationed to the left in support of the 52nd, while Colonel Scott's 44th Virginia was posted to the right near a ravine. The northern artillery fire continued with no great accuracy, but as a precaution, Johnson arrayed his lines in two-man pairs, with five yards between each pair. Around 5 p.m., as Johnson completed these arrangements and rode to scout beyond the right of the 44th, he heard the skirmish fire grow fiercer. Instinct took him back to the sound of the guns, and as he reached the 44th, he saw northern columns crossing the river and surging against his right flank. With Johnson's men just arriving on the scene and the Valley Army still far to the rear, the last thing Stonewall Jackson expected was to fight a battle on the 8th, but with the unexpected federal attack, a battle is precisely what came his way late on that Thursday afternoon. Milroy launched the spoiling attack that he and Schenck had agreed upon with five regiments, or just under 2,400 men. The immediate trigger for the attack was an erroneous report that the rebels were planning a battery of guns on top of Sitlington's Hill. In response to that report, Milroy directed two of his regiments, the 25th Ohio under Colonel W.P. Richardson and the 75th Ohio under Colonel Nathaniel McLean, to cross the river and advance against the presumed center of the enemy line. McLean was an overall command of this movement. Milroy ordered two other regiments, the 32nd Ohio from his brigade and the 82nd Ohio from Shanks, to support McLean with an assault on the Confederate right and rear. Apparently, as an afterthought, Milroy sent the 3rd West Virginia forward along the turnpike. Milroy positioned himself atop Cedar Knob, quote, from whence I could see the whole combat on both sides like a map, he reported. From his vantage point, the Federal assault up Sitlington's Hill appeared, quote, most splendid. From Colonel McLean's perspective, though, things didn't seem quite so cheery. He said, quote, the enemy were in position on the top of the mountain, entirely screened from our view, and the conformation of the ridge permitted them to deliver their fire with only the exposure of a small portion of their bodies, and in reloading they were entirely protected from our fire by the crest of the hill. The side of the mountain up which I was compelled to make the attack was entirely destitute of protection, and so steep that the men were at times compelled to one side or the other in order to make the assault. The Federals evidently negotiated the difficult approach and ascent well, because former VMI instructor and major of the 52nd Virginia, John DeHart Ross, admired the Yankees' advance. He admitted, quote, The enemy's discipline is immensely superior to ours. I watched them well during the fight, or rather at the beginning of it, and I never saw cadets at drill march with greater precision and more regularly than did the Yankees under fire. Not a man shrank from his position, but they all marched alike, true soldiers to the attack. Despite having the advantage of holding the high ground, the Confederate position was not without its disadvantages. The Southerners could duck behind the crest of the ridge to reload, but in stepping forward to fire down on the Yankees, 
They were plainly silhouetted against the clear blue evening sky, making easy targets for the enemy. And as they faced westward, the rebels were blinded by the glare of the setting sun and had a devilishly difficult time picking out the Federal soldiers as they climbed up the slope below. The Confederates also didn't have artillery to take advantage of their position on the high ground, since, as Stonewall explained later, the terrain was too rugged and too steep to drag cannons up, and even if they had managed to do that, the muzzles of the guns would not have been able to be depressed enough to hit the enemy infantry climbing up from below. A final disadvantage was that the slope was so steep that by all accounts, many of the rebel soldiers consistently shot too high and their fire sailed over the heads of the Yankees. The advancing 75th Ohio met the enemy sooner than expected, since Johnson had positioned the 12th Georgia, commanded by Colonel Z.T. Connor, on a forward spur of Sittlington's Hill, so that the Georgians would essentially occupy a salient jutting out toward the Yankees, and that V-shaped exposed position meant the soldiers of the 12th would take fire from three sides. The regiment, though, was the only non-Virginia unit on the Confederate side, and therefore the feisty Georgians were determined to give a good account of themselves. As the 75th Ohio came up against the 12th Georgia at the center of the Confederate line, the 32nd Ohio and 82nd Ohio collided with the 25th Virginia moments after that regiment moved into position. Meanwhile, the 44th Virginia surged forward without orders to fill in a gap that had developed between the 58th and 25th Virginia. Colonel George Smith of the 25th appreciated the help, later admitting, quote, This was my first fight, and I hardly knew what to do. While the 32nd and 82nd Ohio grappled with the 25th Virginia and the right companies of the 44th Virginia atop Sittlington's Hill, and the 25th and 75th Ohio struggled to make headway against the 12th Georgia and the left companies of the 44th Virginia, a sharp fight developed down on the turnpike. There, just beyond the Confederate right flank, the 3rd West Virginia collided with a detachment of the 52nd Virginia and with skirmishers from Company C of the 31st Virginia north of the road. Company C had been recruited in Clarksburg, as had three companies of the 3rd West Virginia. All had served in the same pre-war militia company. During the fighting here, the West Virginias came close enough to the Virginia skirmishers to recognize and call out to them by name. Jackson, meanwhile, after realizing that he had a real fight on his hands, had hurried forward the leading elements of the Valley Army. As Confederate reinforcements continued to appear, they gave the defenders a decided numerical advantage over the attackers. Jackson directed the 10th Virginia of Tolliver's Brigade to form in reserve behind the 58th Virginia on the Rebel left. And during a lull in the fight with the 82nd Ohio, he replaced the 25th Virginia, with the 23rd and 37th Virginia, also from Tolliver's Brigade. There was no relief at hand for the 12th Georgia, though, which was getting the worst of its encounter with the 75th Ohio, as the Yankees wrapped themselves around the sides of the Georgians' exposed position. Finally, at a quarter till seven, the sun set on a cloudless horizon. When the 12th finally withdrew, they were exhausted and out of ammunition, but not broken, and the 48th Virginia of Campbell's Brigade was on hand to take their place. 
Just after moving up, the 48th Virginia was stung at about 7 p.m. by a sudden attack by the 32nd Ohio, which lunged forward in an attempt to reinvigorate the flagging federal attack against the Confederate left. Meanwhile, at Milroy's direction, the 3rd West Virginia left the turnpike to join the 82nd Ohio in a final push against the rebel right. Both Union assaults were quickly broken up. By this time, there were now 11 Confederate regiments and one battalion on the field to oppose the five attacking Federal regiments, and Colonel McLean wisely told everyone within reach to find what cover they could and hold their ground. The shooting sputtered out at about 9 p.m. Allegheny Johnson had been severely wounded about an hour earlier when a bullet shattered the bones in his ankle. As he was evacuated from the battlefield, Johnson met Stonewall and confirmed to Jackson that Tolliver, as the next highest-ranking officer on the field, was now in command of the fighting atop Sitlington's Hill. Jackson told Jedediah Hotchkiss to find Tolliver and tell him that he must hold on until Jackson could bring up the Stonewall Brigade. Hotchkiss said, quote, I at once galloped to where a steep log rollway led up to the field of the engagement. Finding there a soldier whom I knew, I gave my horse in his charge and scrambled up to the top of the mountain where the fighting had been going on, but which had then ceased but a short time. Everything was confusion, the men all mixed up and hunting for the wounded, and reforming in anticipation of another attack. Hotchkiss found Tolliver, delivered his message, and then clambered back down the slope and returned to Jackson's side. The two waited for sounds of renewed fighting, but all was quiet. After a short while, a courier appeared with word from Tolliver that the battle was over. At 10 p.m., Milroy withdrew the federal regiments from the east side of the river. After an informal council of war in which every field-grade officer in the two commands agreed that McDowell was indefensible against the enemy of superior strength across the way, Shank and Milroy gave orders for a withdrawal toward Franklin. Federal casualties in the battle were 26 dead and 230 wounded, with three men reported missing. Confederate losses were far higher, in one of the rare instances in the Civil War in which the defender suffered more losses than the attacker. The Southerners lost 146 men killed or mortally wounded, 382 wounded, and 4 men captured. In the 12th Georgia alone, out of 540 men engaged, 52 had been killed and 123 wounded. That Stonewall had not imagined any risk of an aggressive move by the vastly outnumbered Federals at McDowell speaks well of Shank and Milroy's tactics in launching a spoiling attack. They had accomplished their stated purpose and had inflicted heavy casualties on the rebels in the bargain. By any reasonable judgment, the Battle of McDowell was a Union tactical victory, but in a larger sense, the fruits of victory rested with Jackson, just as they had after the defeat at Kernstown. Although the intervention of the Almighty is debatable, Stonewall wasn't telling stories when he sent a message to Richmond the next morning saying, quote, God blessed our arms with victory at McDowell yesterday. With Schenck and Milroy's retreat and Stonewall's pursuit, which we'll get to in a minute, 
The immediate threat from Fremont's army had been eliminated, and so Jackson could justly claim victory at McDowell. Besides that, Stonewall's message, despite its brevity, had a profound impact on the Confederate home front, since the report of his success at McDowell was the only good news that Southerners received in early May 1862. With the defeat at Shiloh, the loss of Island Number 10, the capture of New Orleans, and McClellan's advance up the peninsula threatening the rebel capital, Jackson's success at McDowell and his subsequent pursuit of the retreating Yankees provided a bright ray of hope for the Confederate nation. One of Stonewall's staff members noted, quote, This announcement was received by the people of Virginia and of the Confederacy with peculiar delight because it was the first blush of the returning day of triumphs after a season of gloomy disasters. The federal retreat from McDowell began about half an hour after midnight on Friday morning. Milroy remained behind with the rear guard until daybreak, as his men burned provisions and threw excess ammunition into Bull Pasture River. By the time the rear guard departed the village, Milroy told his wife that, quote, I was so sleepy and wearied that I could hardly sit on Jasper. Jasper, of course, uh, was Milroy's horse. Uh, at any rate, there would be little sleeping for either the Yankees or rebels. Determined to push after the retreating enemy, Jackson began a pursuit on the afternoon of Friday, May 9th. But the main body of the withdrawing Federals put 13 miles between themselves and their pursuers before Stonewall got started, and Shank then halted on a high ridge commanding the road to Franklin, daring the Confederates to attack. Stonewall wisely declined, and the Yankees resumed their retreat to Franklin, where Shank assumed Fremont would meet them. On May 11th, the weary brigades of Shank and Milroy shuffled into Franklin, but there was no sign of Fremont. Blinker's hapless division had finally completed their odyssey and arrived in western Virginia 48 hours earlier, but it was in such amazingly bad shape that the division's arrival actually delayed Fremont's move to link up with Shank and Milroy. But the rugged ridges that dominated the approach to Franklin gave Shank confidence, and he deployed his forces to take best advantage of the terrain. Before reaching the town, though, Shank had had his men set fire to the heavy timber on either side of the road as they passed, and the resulting forest fires and choking smoke hindered Stonewall's approach more effectively than any rearguard action. The Confederates finally felt their way through the fire and smoke to the outskirts of Franklin, but finding the Federals drawn up on the commanding terrain there and, quote, having other and more important plans, as Sergeant John Worsham of the 21st Virginia put it, Jackson on the morning of May 13th ordered a withdrawal back toward McDowell. Now that he'd eliminated the immediate threat from Fremont, those other and more important plans of Stonewall's, as we've said, were to head back to join Ewell and go after Nathaniel Banks. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Stonewall in the Valley, Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson's Shenandoah Valley Campaign, Spring 1862, by Robert G. Tanner. 
I think we've said before that solid book-length treatments of the entirety of Stonewall Jackson's Valley campaign are actually kind of few and far between. But of those that are out there, uh, Tanner's book is looked at now as the classic account since it was first published way back, and I'm making air quotes there, way back in 1976. Uh, Don't forget you can find Tanner's Stonewall in the Valley and all of our other book recommendations if you head over to the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. If you listen to the show on iTunes, then the next time you're there, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating or even taking a minute to write a quick review of the show, since if you do that, it helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And it makes Tracy and me feel all warm and fuzzy inside to read the extremely nice things that so many of you uh, have to say about the podcast. Uh, So thanks to everyone who has taken the time to do that on iTunes, and not just on the U.S. iTunes site, but on the other iTunes sites all around the world. Uh, That really means a lot to us. Yes, thanks, y'all. Well then, uh, still doling out thanks, we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome this week. Todd, Paul, Brian, Gordon, and Alan. Thanks so much, guys. And it was sweet of Gordon to let us know he's from Ireland, but living in Australia at the moment, and listening to our podcast about the American Civil War. Thanks, Gordon. And then we also wanted to thank Tom in Baltimore for his donation this past week. And now, for those of you who have hung in to the almost bitter end of this show, we have a special announcement, and it's that there will not be a new episode next week. And yes, we can hear your disappointed sighs and groans of despair from here in our kitchen in Colorado, but perhaps it will ease your pain just a bit to know that we're taking a weekend off for some birthday festivities which are meant to ease my pain in the realization that I'm going to be yet another year older. Uh, Anyway, so if you're listening in real time, that means the next new episode will be out the weekend of March 27th. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time, not next week, But next time, when we'll continue with Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. Next up will be the Battle of Front Royal. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.